Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Fear shrinks your life. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I've been teaching a whole series based on my book, Courage to be Healed. I hope that you will stay tuned. At the end of this broadcast, someone is going to tell you how you can get the book and how you can get it for those that you care about. This book has been a tremendous seller for us. I'm very proud of of the stories we've gotten of people who have found healing and courage and strength out of it. And I've just been sort of giving general ideas on it. But I want to deal with today this topic of fear. What we've said is that there are five principal toxins that poison a life. And each of those five is rooted in a throne. I call it a throne. You can call it a stronghold or a fortress or a dominion or something. But then there is a therapy, a biblical therapy that tears that thrown down and allows that toxin to dry up and quit flowing in the life. And then the resulting goal in the life is what God wants for that life. Instead of a life of fear, there's something that God wants for that life, something that will broaden the life, widen the life. Fear shrinks the life, and the goal of God is to broaden the life. What is that goal? That goal is hope. Fear shrinks life. Hope opens life. I cannot commit because I'm afraid. Hope now gives me the power to commit. Fear shrinks all kinds of parts of our lives. It destroys any entrepreneurial impulse because I spend my life so much trying to secure the present, I can't invest in the future because I'm living in fear. But that can happen relationally, a fear of commitment in a relationship, fear that this will go badly, that I'll get hurt, that this person will disappoint me or leave me or whatever it is, so therefore I won't get involved in the relationship at all. It shrinks life. Now, where is that fear rooted? What is that throne, that uh, dark thing out of which the toxin of fear pours? That is pain. Pain that we either remember or have manufactured. I I counseled with a young man, let's call him Casey. He recounted how he would lie awake at night as a child. His father had deserted the family, his mother's left alone. His mother would often talk about, I don't know if we're going to make it. She was in dire financial straits. And, um, She would talk too loosely in front of her little son about this. She described in great detail all the possible consequences of of this parental desertion, the father deserting them, the resulting financial crisis. She even worried aloud that the state might come and take Casey away from her and put him in an orphanage. It It was a vision that festered in Casey's young mind, and it terrified him for years. And he would tell me how he'd lie awake at night, rolling these fears around in his head like a marble until he was exhausted. At school every day, he battled 
to concentrate because of the dark scenarios playing out in his in his little childlike imagination. He imagined state officials showing up at the door of the school to drag him off to some state-run institution. And so he's trying to do his work in class. He keeps looking at the door to see if the cops are there, whoever would come. Later in life, he called this doing a worst-case scenario. So no matter what came up, he did a worst-case scenario, quote-unquote, but it wasn't simply processing uh, reasonably how this might go wrong. He processed every fear that he could imagine. So I might have a date with this girl, but she could be have a bad time. She could hate me. She could tell things about me. And so gradually, what he called a worst-case scenario was simply living in fear of the worst possible outcomes of anything. He, he never was able to come up with practical strategies to handle these potential disasters, nor could he emotionally process the possibility that a worst-case scenario might not actually happen. He just lived in constant fear of it. And, and that's where we began uh, in the counseling with Casey. Let me tell you the, the, the reality of fear is seated in pain. So that can be the pain of some past situation, and it can be the imagined pain. So ask yourself this, have you ever taken a child to the doctor and the doctor says, we're going to have to give him an injection, and the doctor or the nurse appears with that hypodermic needle and your perfectly normal little child goes completely crazy, runs around the office, flees the nurse, fights her, kicks at the doctor. It is because he has imposed some possible future pain on that hypodermic needle. He sees that as being the thing that can be the most horrible pain that he's ever experienced in his whole life. And so that pain now flows out into his little life as fear, and now the fear makes his actions uncontrollable. The strange thing about pain is that we cannot actually remember how it felt when it was happening. We remember that it hurt. The worse it hurt, the greater the pain, and the more terrifying the fear that it would be repeated. But the actual sensation of the pain is not stored in our minds. So, in other words, the, the painful memory. Uh, whatever it is, is there, and something reminds us of that pain. Something something uh, stirs it. Something, if I can use the phrase, it triggers the memory of that pain. That memory causes the fear of that pain being repeated to surface and grip a life so that future action is inhibited, and gradually you move back further and further and further until your life shrinks as a result of it. So with Casey, for example, that fear of worst possible scenarios translated into almost every aspect of his life. There were only a couple of things in his whole life that he would eat, do, uh, try, because he could think of everything bad. This might taste horrible. This might be a bad experience for me. He had never been to a theme park. Because as a child, he could think that roller coaster could, could fall off of there. I could be killed. Everything he thought of that he might like to do or enjoy doing, he replaced it 
with every imaginable possible pain he could think of. So sometimes we are afraid of a pain that has been in our life. And so we, when something happens, somebody says something, some word happens, some situation that reminds us, that connects us emotionally to that pain in the past, we shrink away from it. We pull back away from it. Or we imagine some pain in the future and we refuse to go into a course of action that would in any way open us up to that pain. And all of that shrinks our lives. Let me give you an example. A wealthy man came to me and asked if I would be willing to work with his mother, an elderly woman. Uh, and I spent a year working with her on the issue of agoraphobia. Now, let me just remind you what agoraphobia means. It's from the, the Latin word agora, meaning the, the marketplace, phobia for fear. So it's a fear of being outside in a crowd. She had never been assaulted, attacked, abused. There was no fear in the past that she was trying to avoid. It was the fear of the future. Her fears were imaginary. She could think of every possible thing that could ever happen to her. And so gradually, she retreated further and further and further from real life. By the time I went to meet with her, she would not come out of her house. She had not been out of her house in some time. She couldn't go get groceries. Her grown children had to bring her food. Every necessity of life they had to supply for her in her house. She wouldn't even go in her own yard. She wouldn't get in her daughter's car. She wouldn't take a drive. She could think of all these horrible things. That, that fear gripped her life flowing out of imagined pain, where Casey's pain was remembered pain. Hers was imagined pain. Her mind, her soul would eventually have to be restored by love, but faith flowing out of the reality of God's omnipresence had to be the first step. So when I first started working with her, I tried to convince her that the possibility of these fears was unrealistic. So I began to say, nothing could happen to you in the front yard. I talked to her statistically about how safe it was to be in her son's car. I talked about the fact that the, the shopping mall near their house was one of the safest places in the state. All of those things. I didn't make a dent. And so finally, I had to go the other direction. I tried the other direction. I started telling her how dangerous it was in her house. I said, ma'am, I, I don't know if you've ever thought about it. You're here all alone in this house, and this is, this is not the greatest neighborhood in the city. Somebody could break in here. They could kill you, uh, do whatever they want. She was horrified. She said, Dr. Rutland, are you trying to help? This doesn't feel like help. And I said, I'm just trying to show you, you're trying to create a safe space, and this is not necessarily a safe space. And then she came to the question, okay, then where is a safe space? And that came to the critical point. No place. No place. She was horrified. You mean to say there's no place on earth that we're entirely safe? I said, absolutely not. You could be in Fort Knox, safe from any criminal, safe from robbery, safe from everything, 
and the tiniest germ in the world can go inside Fort Knox and go inside of you and save from a criminal, you die of pneumonia. She said, this cannot help me. She said, why are you saying this? So then I began to talk with her about that Jesus is not trying to spare her from any dangerous moment. He is willing to be in the moment with her. So we began session after session after session, just walking around through her house, inviting Jesus to be in the house with her in room after room, just small things. We would sit on the couch together and we would say, is Jesus on the couch with us here? Is he here? Is he across the room? Is he at the dining room table? It was week after week after week. Is he in the kitchen? Is he in the bedroom? Is he in the living room? So we gradually began to deal with the issue that God is with us. So we began to use the 23rd Psalm as a therapeutic instrument. I had to repeat the 23rd Psalm over and over and over again, a hundred times a day. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. In other words, it's the presence of God that breaks the fear, not the absence of danger. That was the critical moment when she began to get that. So what is the biblical therapy that tears down fear? It is 1 John 4, 18, perfect love casts out fear. That is the, the presence of perfect love embodied, personified in Jesus himself when God, through Jesus Christ, comes into the most dangerous, terrible situation imagined, experienced in the past or imagined in the future, I can walk in that valley of the shadow of death, not confident that nothing bad will happen to me, but confident that no matter what happens, he is in it with me. One deeply depressed pastor told me of his childhood with an alcoholic father who had horribly manipulated the entire family in gut-wrenching all-night, quote-unquote, discussions, which left everyone emotionally drained. The father was not physically abusive. He never beat anybody up like so many drunks, but his emotional abuse left deep and lasting scars. The father would come in drunk three o'clock in the morning, wake everybody up, make them assemble at the dining room table, and then he would begin, you don't love me. None of you care about me. You don't care if I leave. I may as well leave. You don't care if I live or die. I may as well kill myself. So these poor little children, this pastor included, would try pitiably with broken hearts, rivers of tears, to try to convince him otherwise. We do love you. We really do. Please don't leave us. Please don't kill yourself. On and on. These horrible sessions would go on for hours. In the morning, the father would go to bed and sleep it off. But his poor family, including this pastor as a little child, had to try and go on with life. The children, now exhausted, beyond exhaustion, had to go to school. This pastor told me this nightmare, emotional merry-go-round, was utterly fatiguing. So he said to me, many people struggle to believe that God loves them. He said, I know God loves me. He said, what I struggle with is convincing God that I love him. Because he had replaced God 
with a drunken, neurotic father crying, you don't love me. The source of his pain was his father's neurotic and totally unreasonable denials of his family's love. The therapy, the only therapy that could ever help him was love. To believe, and that's what we worked on. That's where we went, and he found a tremendous deliverance. He had to see that true love can also be loved, can accept love. If God is perfect love, and he is, he loves us perfectly. But also, because he is perfect love, he can accept and fully receive our imperfect love. That was the healing therapy that set him free of the fears of his future. Now, what about that elderly lady? What about her agoraphobia? As we began to practice the presence of Jesus in her room, it gradually expanded her life. It pulled her life further out of the lonely trap that she was in. I'll never forget the moment when her grown son, who was paying me for the counseling, called me from her driveway. He said, I'm sitting in the car talking on the cell phone. And he was weeping. He said, my mother is in the front yard all alone watering the flowers. He said, I never thought I'd see it again. Gradually, her life expanded from the yard to the car, from the car to the shopping mall, not because she became convinced nothing bad would ever happen to her. That's an unrealistic conviction. She became convinced that no matter what, God was in it with her, and it tore completely down the bondage of her fear, and it was replaced with a transcendent hope, and that expanded her life. I hope this has been useful for you and that it will be useful for you as you deal with others who are in pain and living in fear of that pain being repeated or the pain of imagined future. I also hope that you'll get my book, Courage to Be Healed. It's it's just been such a, I've been so thrilled with the response to Courage to Be Healed. And not just the sales, that's great, of course, and that all goes to global servants and to our girls' homes, but beyond the sales, the people that have been helped by this book, it just thrills me to know it. And I know that you or someone you love needs to receive courage to be healed. Stay tuned now and Someone is going to explain to you how you can get courage to be healed, this new book, and get it for those that you love and care about. I'm so glad you joined me today. Remember, perfect love casts out all fear, and that expands our life with hope, and that is the plan of God for your life. Not a life shrunken and shriveled by fear, but a life expanded with hope. Till we meet again, this is Mark Rutland, and this has been The Leader's Notebook. To order a copy of Courage to be Healed for yourself or someone you love, please visit the store at drmarkrutland.com. Enter the promo code COURAGE for 30% off. To order by the case, please call us at 888-823-8772. Thank you for listening to The Leader's Notebook.